As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And happy holidays. Christmas time is oh. here. No? All right. It's not great. Merry I'd... Christmas. Okay. Happy holidays. That one's better. Yep. Thanks. There we go. So really, you know, just whatever. Um, many of you have probably already shut this off <laughs> at this point, and we do not blame you. That hurts me because it's directed entirely at me. So yeah, yep, uh-huh. that's what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry for Tori's behavior. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this is dropping on Christmas. Oh my God. Like what a. What a serendipitous year it is that Saturday should fall on Christmas miracle. Yeah. And then our new posting schedule starts after this. Oh, my God. So you're going to be getting another one just here in a couple days. Again, Christmas miracle. What a Christmas miracle. Gift that keeps on giving. Sure does. Also, I think I should just right off the top let you guys know that my nose is all stuffy and I'm a mouth breather right now. So Yeah, it's actually really embarrassing for you. It's pretty bad, yeah. So just want to let you guys know about that. (laughs) Other than that, I think this should be a pretty normal day for us here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we jump into the case, though, we do just want to remind you, we got bonus shits on the Patreon. Tons and tons of bonus shits. It's going to be amazing and worth your while. Totally worth your while. You can get on the Patreon. You can get up to four episodes a week now. Mm-hmm. Just there. Mm-hmm. That's $10 a month. We get you that. Oh, yes. Incredible. And it's all ad-free. So all ad-free. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know what? If you're thinking about it, you've been on the fence or whatever, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And you really don't want to listen to the ads. Go join over there. $3 a month, y'all. You can get no ads. Mm-hmm. Take it for a spin. See how you like it. Yeah. That is, le- that's like, 
a quarter of a Starbucks right I there. Know, I was going to say, what's the measurement? Because they keep on going up they and do. I keep on, yeah, keep on getting mad about it, but. But just keep on going. Oh yeah, no, I'm not going to stop going. Yeah. I'm like, are you serious? I'll be back tomorrow. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. So yeah, definitely check that out. And then of course, don't miss our live audio show on Spotify Green Room on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Central. Yes. And the best thing about the Spotify Green Room is you can actually request to speak and you can speak to us specifically. Like it's going to be, it's amazing. You can comment, of course, but if you wanted to actually have a one-on-one conversation, you can do it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We want to hear your voice. Mm -hmm. So cool. You have such a beautiful voice. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes, that was my Sebastian impression. It was spot on. Thank you. I have to say, yeah. I'm practicing every day. Oh, well, see, practice pays off. <laughs> exactly. Do you want to go ahead and do this though? Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. We do have a couple trigger warnings here. Violence, gun violence, domestic violence, murder, child abuse, sexual abuse of a child, and strangulation. Yes, that's a that's a lot of trigger warnings. Yeah, we're taking a we started off with like happy holidays and now we're taking a dive. Yes, we are, but I mean, I think you knew kind of that it would take a turn at some point. Sure, sure. It had to it and had here to. we are. Here we are. So, should we do a little episode description? Yeah. Okay. So, for about an hour on December 28th, 1987, the best year in the world. <laughs> That's the year Tori was born, if you haven't. Yeah. Because everything's about her. Go ahead. <laughs> Shut up. The town of Russellville, Arkansas was under siege. A gunman had gone on a shooting spree targeting what seemed to be random businesses and people. Expecting a bloody end to the spree, the police were shocked when the man gave himself up. Once they discovered his name, Ronald Gene Simmons, they began to uncover a series of events that had taken place over the past few days that would leave many of them shocked to their very core. Eek. Mm-hmm. Eek the cat. And um, not to be confused with the other Gene Simmons. No relation. No. No. But we, Tori keeps sending me pictures of him when we talk about recording this episode. Yes. Kind Just to, yeah. It's, I mean, well, I, hello. Your name is Michael Bolton? Like, his <laughs> name, he goes by Gene and his name is Gene Simmons. Why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder, I just wonder how many times people are like, oh, like the guy from Kiss. <laughs> you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Three days after Christmas in 1987, the town of Russellville, Arkansas, came to life at the report of a shooting that had taken place at the Peel Law Office, which was a local law firm. 24-year-old Kathleen Kendrick went into work that morning expecting just an average day, returning after the Christmas holiday. It was around 10.15 a.m. when the call came into police and went out over their radios of shots fired with one person down. Kathy was shot three times in the head and would succumb to her wounds. About a mile away at Taylor Oil Company, Julie Cordano was getting settled in and starting her first day at her new job. Ugh, what a bad first day. First day. First day. And she said that she was like extra excited to be there and to get a job as a bookkeeper because she was like, you know, nobody hires right after Christmas. Like, It's amazing. How lucky am I to get this job and start the day, you know, right after Christmas, basically. 
As she was getting familiar with the job and her duties, a delivery man, J.D. Chafin, came in and was dropping some stuff off. They chatted for a little bit when, out of nowhere, Julie heard two loud pops. Confused and frightened, she looked in the direction that the pops came from, and at that time, she sees the door swing open. And then all she remembers is seeing someone raise their arms, outstretched with a gun pointing at her and J.D. She heard the gun go off, and J.D. collapsed, and he was dead before he hit the ground. Mm. Like, terrifying. And also, like, she's like, he was so nice, and I was getting to know him, and like, you know, this is was going to be a person I was going to see on a regular basis. Yeah, and she watched him die, like, in a matter of seconds. Yes. And it's just so crazy too because, you know, she didn't, I'm sure she didn't even have time to process what was happening right. when she sees somebody get murdered right in front of her. I mean, like, mm-hmm. cannot even imagine. Next, the shooter stepped out of the doorway with a grin on his face and pointed the gun at her. Like, again, horror movie, like he's just smiling, walking around. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She instinctively began to dive to the floor just as the man opened fire at her. She felt a bullet rip through her hair and she laid motionless on the ground. Saved her life, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. The man walked up and looked down at her. Then assuming that he'd shot and killed her, he stepped over her body and made his way out of the building. So then she heard a car start up and begin to drive away. So she got up and she went to JD, but she could tell that he was already dead. So she looks out the window and she saw a gold-colored car, which is a Toyota Corolla. And this is a 1980s version. Maybe, I guess, I don't know, it was the 80s. Um, Mm -hmm. Pulling out of the parking lot. The first two pops that Julie had heard, because remember, she hears the two pops before he opens the door to the office that she's in. Well, what she didn't realize at the time was that those first two pops that she heard was this man shooting and killing her boss. Not killing, I'm sorry, shooting her boss. Yeah. Shooting her boss, Rusty Taylor. So she grabs the phone, calls 911. She told the police that two people were shot, one was dead, and then the man who did it fled in a gold car. Officers were immediately dispatched to the scene of the second shooting. The description given matched the description from the first shooting, so the police were on the lookout for this gold car. He had traveled west from scene one to scene two. So Sheriff, who's now retired, Aaron Duvall, headed further west to try to cut the man off since they suspected he's going to continue on that route. They didn't know where he was going, of course, or if he was going to attack again, but they knew they needed to find him fast. Yes. And if you guys wanted to watch something on this, there is a show called, yes, called Homicide for the Holidays. And it is season two, episode five. Mm -hmm. Just for the law enforcement alone. Oh, precious. As the day is long. It's worth watching. It's so great. I just love these men so much. They're so, their country is turning green. so country. Mm-hmm. Like at one point he said, we didn't know if he was going to shoot himself. And like the captions even wrote like his self. Like they didn't mm-hmm. even try to correct it. They were like, he's just, he's just country. Yep. He's cute. Yes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So he's trying to cut him off, right? Then around 10.40 a.m., another call came in about a third shooting on the east side of town. So he literally went the complete opposite direction. And, you know, Sheriff Duvall was like, darn it, i just right. been driving all this way. Well, I mean, shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he jumps on the interstate. He heads towards the Mini Mart, which is where this shooting has happened, and it's a local gas station. And at this shooting, two people had been shot and wounded, Roberta Woolery and David Sawyer. So up to this point, five people have been shot and two are dead. Now, the town of Russellville at this point was pretty much shut down. Every available law enforcement officer was on the hunt for the shooter and the gold Toyota Corolla. There was a feeling of dread that spread throughout the town and amongst the officers. And something to keep in mind when we talk about this is the time these events took place. Nowadays, we don't want to say that these tragedies are so commonplace that we become desensitized to them. But back in 1987, this had to be the furthest thing from anyone's mind, especially right after Christmas. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know that it's not the same, but I remember last year on Christmas, there was a bombing in downtown Uh, Nashville. Yes. Yeah. And I had, I mean, I don't think any of us had any idea that something like that would happen on Christmas Day in the morning. Yeah, Christmas morning, first thing. It's like you turn mm-hmm. on anything and it's just like, what is happening mm-hmm. in downtown Nashville? It's so awful. Byron McCauley was a reporter for the Arkansas Gazette at the time, and he said that downtown there were sirens, police cars, ambulances just everywhere. There are multiple casualties and multiple victims. At the time, it was probably the closest thing that a lot of the people had seen to a war zone, essentially. About half an hour after everything began, Duvall was driving east on the interstate now because he had already gone damn west. Now he's got to go damn east because he <laughs> switched, heading toward the Mini Mart crime scene when the unthinkable happened. Another call came in about a fourth shooting. There's a shooting at Woodline Freight. Suspect is still on the scene. This time, the shooting was at the Woodline Motor Freight Company. A supervisor there, Joyce Butts, was shot. The shooter then took a worker, Vicki Jackson, hostage at gunpoint. He took her into an office and told her she needed to call the police. According to Jackson, he then told her, I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The authorities were quick to arrive on scene. There were officers from the city, county, and even state troopers all arriving at the same time. They quickly established a perimeter, but they had a sinking feeling. I mean, this is somebody that they know is not afraid to shoot and kill. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, it seems like he's just shooting at random, you know? Yeah. And of course, they're terrified that he's going to hurt his hostage. He's going to maybe kill himself or his self, <laughs> if you're from Arkansas, or that he was going to try suicide by cop because, you know, there are some situations where that happens. And, They're trying to just expect, anticipate anything. Yeah. He claimed that he wanted to give himself up, 
but the police were skeptical as they approached the office door. They had their guns drawn. They are ready to act if he gives them any reason to. And he was actually like, had her on the phone with police mm-hmm. while they're working their way through the building. And he's like, got Vicky negotiating for him at gunpoint. Mm. What the fuck? So they slowly open the door. They're totally prepared for a shootout or some type of incident. But they open the door up and then he lets Vicky leave. And then he just drops his gun. He stands up, puts his hands in the air, and they were able to arrest him without incident. So once they had him in custody, Duval said that he had taken him into an air- interrogation room and the man showed no emotion. He didn't say anything for the longest time. When they asked him anything, he would just stare blankly. Then he finally said his name. He said his name was James Johnson, and he didn't say anything else. So the police thought that that was the best place to start. They began to look up James Johnson and see what they could figure out, and he never gave another statement at all. Back at the scene of the last shooting with Len Freight, they found his car, which was a gold hatchback Toyota Corolla. They looked up the plates and found that it was registered to Ronald Gene Simmons. And they began to investigate their shooter, but they weren't aware that this was just the tip of the iceberg. And it wouldn't take long for them to discover the horror that Ronald Gene Simmons was capable of. So Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15th, 1940 in Chicago. In 1943, though, his father, William Simmons, died unexpectedly of a massive stroke. Within a year of his father's death, his mother, Loretta Simmons, had remarried. His stepfather was William Griffin, who was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. His work as an engineer with the, is it USACE? USACE? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Earlier today, I asked somebody about, um, her daughter had used to play volleyball, but whatever. And I was like, so is she going to audition again for the volleyball team? And she was like, (laughs) try out. I was like, that's the one. (laughs) What do you do do for sports? So this and I don't know. Yeah, I think we need, it's better to just stay in our own lanes, right? Yeah. So he worked as an engineer with the USACE, moved um, it moved them from the big city life of Chicago to a smaller rural area of Little Rock, Arkansas. And over the next decade or so, their family would move several times all throughout the state of Arkansas. From an early age, Gene showed some odd tendencies. He would fight with his younger siblings, oftentimes ending when he would physically attack the younger children. He would do whatever he could to manipulate his siblings and even his parents. When he got into trouble, he would fly into fits of rage and never back down or admit he was wrong. His younger brother said that there was only one way to describe him, which was a bully and a tyrant. When he was in the second grade, his family moved to Hector, Arkansas, which was a very, very small town. They moved into an old farmhouse that didn't have running water. It was about 20 miles from the nearest paved road. And to Simmons, though, it was paradise. He loved being out alone in the middle of nowhere with no other people to disturb them. In his mind, it was the perfect, simple life, which he could long for throughout his adult life. When he was 17, Gene dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. Once he was enlisted, he was first stationed at Naval Station Bermerton in Washington. And it was there that he met a woman who would become his wife, Rebecca, who went by Becky. They were married in New Mexico in 1960, and a year later, they welcomed their first child, a boy that they named Gene Jr. Becky was the exact type of woman that Gene wanted. She was meek, she was accommodating, she was dependent, and she didn't know how to drive, so she relied on him to get around for everything. He ran the household with an iron fist, even when he was away. 
He had set schedules for meals, laundry, and cooking, and he controlled the finances, paying the bills himself and only allowing Becky a small allowance, which usually wasn't even enough to cover meals for the family. In her diaries, she referred to him as my Jean, and while she expressed frustration in how he treated her, always told herself he probably knows best. Hmm. That's and so sad. I know. It is so sad because, I mean, she doesn't, it seemed like she didn't really, either she didn't know better or she was just trying to rationalize it or like, you know, well, but I mean, he wants what's best for us and uh, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But he was Which treating is, them again, terribly. Yeah, exactly. The kind of person that he needed. Mm-hmm, absolutely. To make his life work. Yes. But here's the thing. While Becky was under the impression that they were struggling to make ends meet, they really weren't. They were actually doing pretty well. Gene was just so damn stingy. He had completed his time in the Navy and back in civilian life, he got a job with a bank that paid fairly well. After a while, though, his know-it-all attitude and overbearing, controlling personality rubbed his coworkers and bosses the wrong way. For Gene, this meant that any hopes of a promotion anytime were pretty much zero. Frustrated from his inability to move up the food chain at the bank, he quit his job and turned back to the military. This time, he joined the Air Force. In 1967 and 68, Gene was sent to Saigon during the Vietnam War. He worked in the Office of Special Investigations, and according to everyone he worked with and his superiors, not only did he do good work, he excelled in his position. He was a model of efficiency and proper protocol. The same controlling personality and obsession with order turned out to be an asset in the OSI. So while he was stationed there, he lived in the OSI civilian's quarters in Saigon, and it was a life of comfort, to say the least. He had a maid service. He had a cook. He had a laundry uh, service. It was delivered to his door. And he also had access to more commissary privileges as an officer. While he was away from the OSI and on R&R, he would often vacation in Australia. Wow, what a life. And back home, I'm sure, Becky is like, well, it's like Tiny Tim. Like, we've got this one P that we have to split between everyone. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. Back home in Arkansas, like I said, things were bleak. By this time, Gene and Becky's family had grown by two, bringing their total of children to three. Becky lived in a small travel trailer with the children on her family's land. Even across the globe, Gene continued to be stingy with the money, and he would only send a monthly allowance of $40 for Becky to support their children. A month. And I know at that time, obviously, like, money was way different. $40 went further, but you got four people. Four people. And I'm basing everything I know on money in the 60s on Mad Men, but I know that even they, like, the secretaries got paid, like, $35 a week or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Didn't they? I remember I somebody remember. getting a job offer and them being like, I'll pay you $35 a week. And they were like, take it. Like, whatever. But this is $40 for the month. And meanwhile, and like that pissed me off about, you know, reading about this even before he went back to the military. Cause it's like, he's not giving Becky enough money in her allowance to buy the family meals. And why that should come out of her allowance, I don't know, because he's supposed to be the family provider, right? Because yeah. he's working outside the home, but you're going to take the family's meals out of okay, mm-hmm. all right, okay, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not even giving her enough money to cover that. Meanwhile, if he's working at the bank, you know his house is going out to lunch during the day while of he's course. in town, and yeah, well, and then coming home and Becky hasn't had anything to eat that day, and maybe your child hasn't either. Mm-hmm. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not happy about Jean. 
No. And it only gets worse. <sighs> yes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. On November 30th of 1979, Jean retired from the Air Force and military service with the rank of Master Sergeant. So this is like another 12 years go by. Mm -hmm. Poor Becky. Just Mm -hmm. her whole life. He had a 20-year military career in which he was awarded a Bronze Star, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Marksmanship. That comes into play later, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Also, over the course of that career, Jean and Becky's family had grown significantly from three to seven. At one point, Jean moved the family from Arkansas to San Francisco. From San Francisco, they moved to Cloudcroft, New Mexico. And it was in New Mexico that Jean started to reminisce about growing up in Arkansas, out in the middle of nowhere, and he became obsessed with the dream of having an off-the-grid farm. In pursuit of this dream, he worked his children and wife long, hard hours to make it happen. They built rock walls. They put up fences. They did various other labor-intensive jobs from the time they got home from school until very late into the night. And summertime was even worse. The children were worked from the time the sun came up to when it went down. Jeez. I mean, it's like he didn't want to have kids because he wanted them. He wanted free slave labor. Exactly. In addition to working them to the bone, he also kept his family completely isolated when he could. Gene did not allow a telephone in the house. The children were almost never allowed to visit any friends or have company over. Not like they would want friends to come over anyway. I mean, yeah, that can't be a happy environment. Their mailbox had a lock on it. And guess who had a key to it? Just Gene. I'm shocked. Just Gene. Yep. 
If he had a show, it would be called Just Gene. <laughs> it would. Like, la, 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 la. Just Gene. Like, who has the key to the mailbox? Just Gene. Who has who? <laughs> access <laughs> to the telephone? <laughs> Just Gene. Who's the only one that gets to eat anything? Just Gene. Who drives the car? Just Gene. I mean, yeah, and there would be no laugh track because it would be so depressing oh because God. Gene sucks. Yeah, Gene sucks. He read any and all incoming and outgoing mail and everything they did drew his scrutiny. Like literally nothing anybody did is good enough. Or, yeah. yeah, like ugh. tyrant is a perfect word for him. Yes. While he was forcing his family to live on crumbs, Gene wasn't hesitant to splurge on himself. And that I feel like, I mean, that's just classic, right? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. At one point, he bought himself a Honda motorcycle and later a Subaru truck. There was a slight issue with this, though, as an off the grid farmer, Gene wasn't making a whole lot of money. So to buy himself these fancy things, he turned to banks and family members for loans. Wow. God forbid you work, Gene. Well, and also he's getting loans for frivolous things that he does not need. Yeah. And his family is starving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, things for Becky had turned south about two years before Gene retired from the military, though. In 1977, their youngest daughter, Rebecca Lynn, was born. Becky had, by then, given birth to seven children, all of whom had been underweight. After Rebecca Lynn was born, Becky's OB diagnosed her with an underlying health condition that meant another childbirth would put her life in serious jeopardy. He strongly recommended that she get a tubal ligation. However, this was 1977, so to get the procedure, Becky also needed her husband's consent. Mm. To get a medical procedure that she needed to save her life. Yeah. To protect her health. Mm -hmm. But her husband has to be okay with it. Yeah. And hmm, let me guess what his answer was. Mm. Let's go ask Justine. Yes. No. Yeah. The answer was no. Uh, Becky begged and pleaded with him and literally, you know, like you said, like begging for her life. This is going to be a life-saving procedure. And then eventually he did relent, but begrudgingly. Wow. What a stand-up guy. Mm -hmm. After the surgery, though, Gene was never the same with Becky. He said he could never forgive her for, quote, putting her own life and the children's well-being over his wishes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I'm ready to throw mm-hmm. all of this. I'm eating it out. Oh, yeah. We should have We should have told you to go ahead and get your window open for all the eating. Yeet it right out of the window. All of the things. All of it. Put your own life in front of my wishes. Like, are you listening to this sentence, Gene? Over my wish. I cannot. See, and that's, that's classic, right? It's like his wants come before anybody else's needs. Exactly. Even if it is a person's, your wife's need to live. Mm-hmm. Like, Aren't you supposed to, I don't know, want her to continue the living part? Well, that's just silly. At the very least. Like, and also, and I'm not trying to be funny, but also if she were to die, what is he going to do with all these children? Like, he doesn't help with anything in the house. And why have another kid anyway? Exactly. What's the big deal about getting her tubes tied? Like, 
he didn't provide for the seven that he had. Yeah. Why did yeah, you want another one? Yeah, exactly. One? Yeah, why would you want to add another mouth to feed, another person to have to take care of? You're not going to help with any of it. Like, yeah, yeah. I just don't, I just don't understand. The, but it's, it seems like a blessing to me for right. him. But it's the control. It's, yeah, he's got to have yeah. the control. At this point, he stopped having sex with her completely and he turned his attention towards someone else, Sheila Marie, their oldest daughter. From the moment she was born, Jean did nothing to hide the fact that she was his favorite child. Around 1978, 1979, he started to actively groom her. All of the other kids had to beg for money for school supplies or lunches, and Sheila was spoiled with clothes and jewelry. She was his, quote, little princess or his, quote, ladybug. I hate him. The other children were only met with harsh criticism, demands, and insults. When she was 15, Jean started to molest her. When she was 17 in March of 1981, Sheila was pregnant with her father's child. Mm -hmm. The night Jean dropped her off for her high school prom, he got all the children at home and told them Sheila was pregnant, but left out the part where he was the father. He told them that they were going to raise the child as if it was one of their siblings. No questions were to be asked. Becky knew, though, and she fell into a deep depression. Eventually, word got out and social services questioned Sheila. And when questioned, she told them the truth and an investigation was launched. Gene was, quote, unashamed during his interview, though, and claimed he did it for Sheila's, quote, own good. It was to protect and teach her. He didn't see anything wrong with the situation and he just completely dismissed everything. Oh, God. How are you protecting and teaching her? How is you impregnating your own daughter? For her own good. Yeah, I don't, I cannot under, no one can make sense of that. No. That's ridiculous. What does that teach her? Exactly. Like, yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Jean knew that the district attorney wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie in this case and charges would absolutely be filed against him. So he planned a hasty escape for his family from New Mexico back to Arkansas after Sheila gave birth to the baby, Sylvia Gale. They initially settled in Ward, Arkansas, and Jean almost immediately got Sheila pregnant again. This time, though, he took her to get a secret abortion and told no one. When Sheila turned 18, she wanted to attend classes for a business school in Little Rock. Jean encouraged her, saying it would be good and she could get out and get a job after school and help the family make some money. I think if he didn't need somebody to basically funnel money to him, Mm-hmm. He never would have let her go take classes. Oh my God, never, ever, yeah. Because he wouldn't want her to get a job. Like, he wouldn't want her to be outside of the house. He, she would need to be under his complete control. Yeah. But he needed somebody to bring in money because he didn't want to get off his ass anymore. Mm-hmm. Just crazy. Yeah, and it didn't work out for him anyway because... No, because when she was there, she met a young man named Dennis McNulty. And shortly after meeting, they started dating. And this was obviously an affront to Gene in his way of thinking which was Sheila belonged to him and only him. To combat their relationship, Jean again moved the family, this time to Dover, Arkansas, on a 14-acre farm. They nicknamed it Mockingbird Hill. The house the family moved into was pretty much just two mobile homes that had been cut and modified to fit together. The only indoor plumbing was just run to the shower. That's it. Hmm. To wash dishes and cook food, they caught rain from the roof in jugs of jars. No, and jars. Jugs of jars. <laughs> what is a jug of jar? <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. 
Honestly, though, we're how far in? <laughs> and that's my first major slip up. Yeah. Yeah, that is impressive. Not too bad. <laughs> yeah. So, jugs <laughs> of jars. <laughs> Get your jug, put your jar in it. Jugs of jars. Get your rain. Yeah. So, yeah, and right in the jugs of jars it went. They had a hastily thrown together outhouse that would overflow when it rained too much, flowing into the nearby pond. <sighs> That's just a bad situation. Jean's big dream for Mockingbird Hill, again, was to have a self-sufficient farm. The problem was that the land was rocky and just terrible for any type of crop. Okay, I'm sorry. I am not, I don't have a green thumb. Can't grow a damn thing. Kill everything I've ever touched. But I at least know you need to check your fucking soil before you're going to plan on, like, homesteading it because of rocks and shit. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a shit ton of limestone here. Yeah. So that's why hardly anybody has a basement. Yeah. Like, and also just like different types of soil, you know, like you have to have good soil to have a fucking farm, dude. Well, yeah, I mean, some of it, that's why people who do farm, like Miss KB has, doesn't have a farm, but has a garden and he rotates the vegetables every year because, Mm -hmm. you know, wherever that, that dirt is, it gets played out and it it doesn't need, you know, he like, he rotates it so they can be the best that they can be. Yeah. Whatever. Farming. Yeah. Tilling and hoeing. Yeah. To try and make it work though, he used the one thing he had, which was the labor of his children. Great. I mean, that's why you have kids, right? Well, yeah, that's what I heard. Ugh. Again, he worked them to the bone from sunrise to sunset. This is just so depressing. He's this, his poor everybody in his family, mm-hmm. poor wife, poor children, like, kid, poor oh my gosh, grand. It's yes, yes. Mm-hmm. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When he made a hasty escape from New Mexico, Gene had quit his job without notice and without having anything in place in Arkansas, so there was zero income and he was deeply in debt. To make ends meet, he would take any type of work or shift he could get. He worked at a law firm as a clerk where he began to hit on a coworker, Kathy Kendrick. She told him to stop several times, and when he didn't, she went to the boss and he was fired shortly after. And we know what happened there. It's awful. By this time, the two older boys had moved out of the house and started families of their own. Sheila also told Jean that she was going to move out. He begged and pleaded for her to stay, but it was no use. She moved out and moved in with Dennis McNulty. And they got married. And Sheila told him who Sylvia's real father was. Dennis fully accepted Sheila and Sylvia as his own daughter. 
He told Sheila that he was going to legally adopt Sylvia. So sweet. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a lot. Well, yeah, it's a lot. That would be a lot for anybody to take on. Yeah, but she obviously really longed for and needed that type of unconditional love and the support and the security that he provided. Absolutely. But Gene is losing control even more, and he began to physically abuse Becky. He became more of a hoarder, gathering different things around their farm. Cinder blocks, pallets, sheets of tin and metal, cars, car parts. Jugs of jars. (laughs) He had a whole barn just full of jugs of jars. He's like, this is where I keep my jugs of jars. (laughs) He's like, if you want one, you can make one for his sale. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just waiting for you to fuck up. I'm going to get you. Yeah, you will. Yeah. And it'll happen. It will happen, yeah. He also went to a local store and bought a gun. He already owned one gun, but this was just an additional one. On December 18th, 1987, Gene quit his part-time job at the Sinclair Mini Mart. We're getting a whole, it's coming full circle. Full circle. The police had the man responsible for the shooting spree in custody, and they knew his name was Ronald Gene Simmons, not James Johnson, even though he lied. I mean. Disgustingly, right to their faces. Yeah, like what? Did, did he had to have known like <laughs> this is only going to work for a couple minutes? Yeah, like, the jig is up, dude. Yeah, and also he's tied to every almost every location he went to. Like, yeah, come on, yeah. The and he left survivors, so people would be like, oh yeah, that's Gene. Yeah. Oh, oh you, you mean, mean Gene? Gene? Oh, oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my head! I cannot believe that freaky twin thing. It happens all the time. Yeah, we're not actually twins, but no, but we, but our brains think, are. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the same goddamn person. <laughs> so they searched his name throughout their databases, but they had no arrest records. They didn't have fingerprints, no f- phone numbers on file, which isn't very surprising because he hates fucking phones and he won't allow one in the house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They only found an address. They found the address to Mockingbird Hill and a sheriff sent a deputy out there to take a look around. Once there, the deputy noted that there were several cars, like five or six parked in the driveway in the yard. One thing that jumped out from him or to him was that they were not from the same county that they were in. Different number combinations on license plates were assigned to different counties. So just looking at them real quick, the deputy noticed that they were out of county plates. He knocked on the door and there was no answer. He walked around the house and knocked on the back door, no answer. He peeked into the window and couldn't see anything. He found one window that wasn't completely shut and he pushed it up, moved the window blinds to the side. And from where he was, he saw a Christmas tree. And at the base of the Christmas tree, covered in a blanket, was a body. You got The detective, I know. You're not ready for this. No, no, no. The detective immediately called more officers in and they started a search. As they went through the house, they found a male victim right by the door that was shot in the head. Beneath the Christmas tree, they found the body of a woman who was shot several times in the face. From where the tree was, they could see into the kitchen, and that's where they found another male beside the kitchen table shot in the head. Underneath the table, they found another female shot several times in the head and neck. All four victims had been shot. As they kept searching, they discovered a room that was covered in drawings and pictures on the wall that would make you think it was a child's room. As they searched the bed, they found a young girl's body under a blanket. She had yellow fishing line tied around her neck. This had been a strangling death. And further down the hall, they found another room that was covered in blood. There was evidence of a bloody struggle. It wasn't one of those bodies that had already been found, and they began to expand their search outside the home. 
they turned to the vehicles parked outside and they ran those plates and they were registered to various Simmons family members. Using that information along with photo albums they found in the house, they began to piece together the identities of the victims. So the woman who was shot under the Christmas tree was Sheila McNulty, the daughter that Jean had molested and impregnated. The man by the sliding door was her husband, Dennis. The child found strangled in the bed was Sylvia. The couple also had an infant son, Michael, who was nowhere to be found. In the kitchen, they found, or were the bodies of Billy Simmons and his wife, Renata. Their son, Trey, was missing as well. With the photo album and license plates, they knew that there were more missing family members, and Becky and four other children who lived in the house were missing. Gene Jr. and his daughter were also still missing, and as they searched the house, they found Christmas presents still hidden in various places and closets, and this led them to believe that Simmons had committed his disgusting, heinous act before Christmas, before they even had a chance to exchange any gifts for the holiday. As they searched the land, they saw some sheet metal or tin and moved it aside, and underneath it was an area of fresh dirt. A few months before, Simmons had the children dig this huge, deep hole. They grabbed some shovels and began to dig down. Within a few minutes, they ran into some barbed wire. There was so much barbed wire that they hooked it to a truck winch to remove it. And after it was gone, they kept digging until they found some cloth. For the next hour or so, they slowly dug with small hand shovels and removed bodies from a mass grave. In this grave, they removed seven bodies, including two people who were killed in town. So Simmons body count is up to 14 people. In the grave were Rebecca, their four school-aged children, Loretta, who was 17, Eddie, who was 14, Marianne, 11, and Becky, 8. The couple's eldest son, Gene Jr., and his daughter, Barbara, who was 3. The two young boys were still missing. An officer noticed two vehicles kind of off in a field by themselves on blocks. They went to investigate and popped the trunk in one. They found a small body wrapped in several black bags. They went to the trunk of the other car and discovered the same thing. And these were the bodies of Trey, who was 20 months old, and Michael McNulty, who was 21 months old. This is the largest family massacre in U.S. history. Oh, gosh. On December 22nd, the four school-aged children had left the home for school. Shortly after, Gene went into the room where his eldest son, Gene Jr., was staying while he visited for the holiday. He began to bludgeon Gene Jr. with a pipe, and when he couldn't kill him that way, he shot his son several times. Mm. As that was happening, a panicked Becky hid in her room with little Barbara, begging for their lives. Gene shot Becky, then strangled Barbara with a fishing line. He loaded their lifeless bodies into a wheelbarrow and dumped them into the pit that had been dug months ago. That is just sickening. And they had obviously no idea what they were digging this pit for, but they were literally digging their own graves. Yes. It's just awful. He's so fucking lazy, he can't even dig the graves Mm -hmm. of his entire family who he killed. Mm -hmm. Fuck off. He doused them in kerosene and returned to the house and watched TV and drank beer. You're going to want to take a load off after that. Well, it's a lot of work, honestly, to murder your entire, well— some of your family at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It takes a lot out of you and you want to unwind a little bit from all the murder. Sure, sure. I I mean, he just like sits around and he's just like, all right, gonna, it's like, you know, if you went out and actually did, you know, some work on your farm and then you're like, okay, I'm gonna come in and just like sit for a little bit longer because you still have all these other people coming to your house. Like, I just- His job's not done, unfortunately. 
When the other children arrived home, he met them in the yard and told them he had a surprise for each of them. He instructed them to wait in the car and listen to Christmas carols while he took them one by one to give them their gifts. After he took each child in alone, he strangled them and then placed their heads underwater in a rain barrel to make sure they were dead. (laughs) After he had done this to all four, he took them to the same pit and dumped them in. He covered them with dirt and barbed wire and then scrap metal. He said he did this to keep the animals away. Why did he cover, why did he pour kerosene on them? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he like was the plan to set them on fire? Yeah, if he if that yeah, if that was the plan and then he decided against it, he just yeah. decided to use the barbed wire or something. I don't know. I don't know. The rest of the children were planning on spending Christmas Day with their respective in-laws and were due to arrive at Mockingbird Hill the day after Christmas. So, he waited. Billy and his wife, Renata, were the first to arrive with their son, Trey. He shot them each, then strangled Trey like he had done with the other children. He drugged Billy and Renata's bodies to the kitchen and used jackets to cover them up. He placed Trey's body in the bags and then moved it to the trunk of the car in the field. Next to arrive were Sheila and Dennis with Sylvia and Michael. Again, he shot Sheila and Michael dead. He strangled Sylvia and Michael as he did with the others. Michael was placed in bags like Trey and then moved to the other car, and Sylvia was moved to the bed and put under a blanket. And you got to know that Dennis and Sheila were probably like, I really, really, really don't want to go to this. I I really don't want to go to this. Well, that's the thing. Like, after all that these kids had been through, it's honestly a little surprising to me that they were—that they all would go. Mm -hmm. But I think it's probably, you know, they wanted to be with their mom. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't want her to be, like, by herself with him on Christmas, probably. And see their siblings and stuff, too. But it's supposed to be a, like, they were going to, they were going and trying to find as much joy in this holiday as they could. Yes. Even being around this person who has tortured them their entire lives. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Just awful. Later that day, Simmons drove to Russellville and stopped at a local store to pick up some gifts they had ordered. Okay. He went to a local bar and had a few drinks before returning home, where he drank all weekend and watched TV with the bodies of his children in the next room. Then on December 28th, he returned to Russellville and shot Kathy Kendrick, who he felt had gotten him fired. No, you got yourself. Yeah. All right. All right. You got you fired. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then to the Taylor Oil Company and killed J.D. Chafin and shot owner Rusty Taylor. Rusty didn't just work at Taylor Oil Company. He was also the owner of Sinclair Mini Mart, where Simmons had previously worked. The Mini Mart was also Simmons' next stop, where he shot and wounded Roberta Woolery and David Sawyer. So, I mean, it's just like anybody that, you know, was remotely tied to anything that he felt did him, quote, wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and like J.D. Chafin is shot and killed just because he happens to be, you know, if he was 15 minutes earlier or later. Yeah. It's just awful. Is- then he went to the Woodline Motor Freight Company and found his former supervisor, Joyce Butts. He shot her in the head and chest and then took Vicki Jackson hostage to call the police. He waited for them to arrive, then surrendered without incident. Before trial, Simmons was sent to the Arkansas State Hospital to have an evaluation to see if he was competent to stand trial. He was deemed competent, and the trial was set to take place. He was given a public defender. Jury selection took less than six hours. On May 12, 1988, Ronald Gene Simmons was convicted in the murders of Kendricks and Chafin. On May 6, 1988, 
He was sentenced to death by lethal injection plus 147 years. The trial for murdering his family was held separate from the shooting spree in Russellville. Like, to have so many victims in this way, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's crazy. Like, it it warrants two trials. Like, mm-hmm. it's just horrible. Yeah. On February 10th, 1989, he was found guilty of 14 counts of capital murder. During the trial, the prosecutor had brought up a note that was discovered which detailed Simmons' relationship with his daughter. Simmons, in a fit of rage, punched the prosecutor in the face and then reached for a deputy's gun. What a freaking idiot. Great idea, dude. Yeah. Like, what is it? Um, Bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. (laughs) Exactly. He was removed from the courtroom in chains. On March 16th, 1989, Simmons was sentenced to death by lethal injection. In both cases, he waived all right of appeal. He was quoted as saying, to those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. That makes me want you to, like, want you to live forever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He had to fight the courts to be allowed to waive his appeals, though. Reverend Louis Franz and Jonas Whitmore argued in court that if he was allowed to refuse his appeals, it could jeopardize the appellate rights of other death row inmates. By a vote of 7-2, to two, the Supreme Court threw out this appeal, but the ongoing legal battle about his appeal had resulted in a stay of execution. He was actually eating what he thought was his last meal when he saw that on the news. <laughs> oh. On May 31st, 1990, then-Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton signed the execution warrant for, the June, for June 25th, 1990. It was the quickest sentencing of execution to death time in U.S. history since the death penalty had been reinstated in 1976. I do, like, when I was reading it, I was like, darn, that was fast. I know. And we know what? Bill doesn't play around. No. Just in some situation. No. Torella, do you really want to get into that? Nope. Nope. He did not have. (laughs) You're right. No. Yeah, because he said so. Yeah. He refused all visitors, clergy, and legal aid. His last words were, justice delayed finally being done is justifiable homicide. Okay. (laughs) Whatever. All right, Gene. Yeah. On June 25th, 1990, Ronald Gene Simmons was executed by the state of Arkansas by lethal injection. No surviving relatives claimed his body, and he was buried in a potter's field. Which, Mark, oh, and thank you to Mark for writing up this case. Oh my God, we never said that. Sorry, girl. Mark took the time to let us know what a potter's field is because I did not know it. It it says a potter's field, a pauper's grave, or uncommon grave. Nope. Common grave Mm. is a place for the burial of unknown, unclaimed, or indigent people. So there you go. There you have it. Yeah. And there was, in the Homicide for the Holidays episode, that sweet little sheriff read and a letter or like a journal entry, I guess, because oh, Becky yeah. kept a journal. And she just talked about that her life was just an absolute prison, that she wasn't allowed to go anywhere. She couldn't talk to anybody. She couldn't go to church if she wanted to. She couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. like she couldn't do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Just so sad. Yeah. That was her entire life. And then she died at his hands. Yeah. Living that same life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, and his children too, you know, they they went through so much. Sheila finally got away from him, you know, and just their lives were taken mm-hmm. because he can't, he cannot handle it. 
Yeah, he can't handle being rejected or told no. But those, you know, those cases of like the family annihilator, there Mm -hmm. are so many situations that like if you go back and look at these cases, a lot of these these same characteristics are there. We've lost a job. We've lost control. We've, you know, he either tried to have an affair or, you know, whatever. Like, or I mean, yeah, it's like control of the finances, like not control of the finances, but like the children who wipe out their parents or whatever, which is terrible. They are used to getting everything that they ever want. And when they're told no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you've got, you know, like a lot of these, you know, cases where like, I mean, it's typically a, are there any family annihilator cases where it's a woman? I have not heard of one. I'm not saying that there I can't, one. Yeah, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, the only ones that I can think of where somebody kills their entire family are men. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the, you know, patriarch of the family. Yeah. who takes everybody out. And in this situation, he also took out, you know, in-laws, grandchildren. I mean, that's just horrific. It is. The only thing that I can remember or can think of off the top of my head that is a woman who, but, you know, like there was a snapped episode that one girl, I can't for the life of me remember her name. She killed her dad. Hmm. She didn't kill any other siblings. Wasn't there that other girl, Jasmine? Yeah, she had... She had her family killed, Mm -hmm. didn't she? Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, because I just couldn't think any, like, off the top of my head. Yeah. But again, it's it's a loss of control. I can't be Mm -hmm. with the boyfriend I want to be with. You know, my parents told me no, so everybody dies, even my siblings. Like, yeah. The world. The world. But yeah, guys, um, there's not anything super big here to be like, what do you guys think? But- what do you think? I mean, it's horrific. I, watching this homicide for the holidays, I was like, because no matter how you slice it, we're talking about murder. Like, it is it is what it is. Yeah. But this one was especially heavy. Yeah. Just woof. Also, know, so. does he not look like Charles Manson a little bit, but with no hair? Yes, he does. Like, because he has that, like, really, really, really big, thick beard, but just the his facial structure to me and like his eyes and eyebrows. Like once Charles Manson, you know, got older and lost his hair, it's just, yeah, he absolutely looks like him. Uh, yeah. I think they favor a little bit. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look nice, you know? Mm-mm. No, he it's does terrible. not. Yeah. He's the worst. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Well, well, that's, uh, that's it. Well, we love you guys. And, yes. um, you know, we hope you have a wonderful and safe holiday weekend because next up is New Year's Eve. Crazy town. Party hardy. Yeah. But thank you so much for listening. We will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, you know what time it is. Yeah, it's shout out time. Shout out time. We've got some shout outs for some of our newest patrons, a couple that we may have missed along the way. So, you know, we're not perfect. We're human. Yeah. If we've missed yours, send us an email at killerqueenspodcast at gmail.com, by the way. But hey, girl, thanks to Kate Sandgren, Kylie Morse, Olivia Thompson, Michelle Malone, Winter, Sarah Jensen, Devin Curl Tom, Lauren Tucker, Megan Garrett, Katarina Fry. Faith Pimation, Devani Michaela Russell, Rondine Grinham, 
Madison Commandor, Vanessa Martinez, Takia Jones, Chelsea Justice, Kayla Kalfas, Jordan, Kelsey Holderbaum, Elizabeth Handler, Carly Chovanek, Christy Wood, and Alexa Ben Beniste. Yay! Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. We love you. We love you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.